All right, everybody, why don't you stand up one more time if you're able to. Those of you that are worshiping with us online, I'll invite you also to stand up. We'll rise and declare our faith together as we begin to preach this morning. Let's say it together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now with the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, we still ourselves to acknowledge that God is God and we are not. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. One of the prophets said, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so we still ourselves before you. The first word belongs to you, O God. You spoke and we were. You spoke light into the darkness. You spoke order into the chaos. You spoke life into death. You spoke and the body of the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead and the new creation burst upon us. You spoke, and our eyes were opened. You spoke, and our ears were opened. You spoke, and you brought us from death to life. It's your talking. Everything is response to you. It's all response to you. This morning, we ask that you would uh, cue us in to how talkative you really are, oh God. We sometimes speak wrongly about you. We say, oh, speak to us, oh God. <laughs> but you're always talking. The problem with us is that we're not listening. Would you give us ears to hear, oh God? Would you give us hearts to know and understand what you're saying? And then would you give us bodies and wills strong enough to carry out what you're asking us to do and be in the world? Come among us, holy God, we pray this morning. Teach us in ways that we haven't been taught before. Speak to us in ways that we haven't been, been spoken to before. And I pray that you would remind us of who we are and whose we are, who we belong to. Do that, we ask. We ask that the scriptures would radiate new light and new truth to us, and that we'd find ourselves stepping into our identity 
as sons and daughters of the living God more fully this morning. Grant it, we pray. I'm asking that my words, the words of my mouth, and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Revelation chapter 17. One of the angels, John writes, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. And with her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw there a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, and the beast was covered with blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. It was just Halloween last night. That would have been a halfway decent. I think I saw a few of those in the neighborhood, actually. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, and it was filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, it said, mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that this woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the saints, the blood of those who bore witness to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast, which you saw once was, now is not, and yet it will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. And the inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet it will come. And this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits, and they are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other is not yet to come. But when he does, he must remain for only a little while. And then the beast, who once was and now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven, and he's going to his destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. And they have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, and they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them. He will triumph over them. Why? Because he's the Lord of lords, and he's the king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. And then the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And the beast and the ten horns that you saw will hate the prostitute, so they will turn on the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over the beast, their royal authority, until God's words are filled up. The woman that you saw, John says, or the angel says to John, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. The brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said... So there's an election coming up on Tuesday. <laughs> Thank you, Book of Revelation, for being so helpful to us. It is funny the way that it works when you're committed to reading the Bible and preaching the Bible. The Bible has this funny way of kind of juxtaposing things inside of it, moments in the revelation of God with our moment in history. And so here we are, you know, all of the concerns of our nation and our moment in history, what's happening globally, and it might seem maybe we have an instinct 
to turn our hearts more to sort of practical matters. And then all of a sudden we show up in church, right? And the preacher stands up in front of everybody and he starts reading Revelation 17 about this awful beast with seven heads and ten horns, you know, and a prostitute that's riding upon the beast. And and you're sitting there thinking, but we've got kids with us, Andrew, what are you doing, you know? But, and sometimes it can actually even seem like what, where we are and what's going on in the scripture are very remote from one another, you know? That we have sort of our moment in history and then we have whatever is going on in the scriptures way back then. But I want to suggest to you that this is apocalypse, not just for then, but it's apocalypse for us now. What is apocalypse? You remember? It's a revealing. It's an unveiling. Apocalypse is a peeling back of how we take reality for granted so that we can see reality as it truly is. And I would submit to you this morning that God's heart, not just for our nation, but for all of the nations of the earth, is coming through in a really powerful way in this text this morning, Revelation 17, and also some of chapter 18. If we're going to get down into that, though, into what God's heart is for our nation and for all of the nations of the earth, we have to do a little bit of work making sense of the big symbols that are going on here in Revelation 17. So we have the woman, and she's sitting upon the beast. Let's take those in reverse order. Now, who is the beast? Revelation 17 and verse 3. Look back down at the text. The angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with, with blasphemous names, and it had how many heads? Seven, and then how many horns? Now, this is not the first time in Revelation that we have seen this beast. Does anybody know where we have seen him before? There's a candy bar in it. It's Halloween for somebody who gets the trivia question right. You remember what we've seen? Revelation, this, this beast before. We've seen it in Revelation 13. If you have Bibles, flip back there. But here's what the text says, Revelation 13. The dragon, the dragon represents satanic power, okay? This is demonic power that was defeated in the heavenlies. And now the dragon is a little bit, back in 13, the dragon is a little bit perturbed that he was conquered. And so he's standing on the shore of the sea. And I saw a, what? A beast. It was coming out of where? the sea, and it had ten horns and seven heads, each with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast that I saw, John says, resembled a leopard, and it had feet like those of a bear, and it had mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and his great authority. So the dragon, which is a symbol of demonic power, gives his authority to this beast, but still, what is the beast, right? And John here, in this chapter, and everywhere that he talks about the beast, he's drawing from the imagery of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 2. Daniel says that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven turning up the, the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. And Daniel, if you'll read that chapter, and you should, Daniel will go on to explain that those four beasts that are coming up out of the sea, do you know what they are? They're kings and their kingdoms. Okay? They're governments, nations, political leaders, rulers. That's what Daniel is talking about. And John picks that up 
And John says that that same thing is going on right now. It's tempting sometimes, I think, to read the book of Revelation and go, well, this is talking about things that are going to happen at the end of history. And I do certainly think that there are things that are going to happen at the end of history that will usher in the kingdom. But I also think that John can draw on these things and talk about them because they're always true in the here and now. Remember, John says that this beast once was, now is not, and yet will come. There's something we might say supra-temporal about the imagery that John is using. One of the great New Testament scholars of our day explains what's happening in Revelation 17 like this. He says that the number seven is not a literal number designating the quantity of kings in some given epoch, but it's figurative for the quality of fullness or completeness. Therefore, rather than seven particular kings or kingdoms of the first century or any other, the seven mountains and kings, they represent oppressive power of world government throughout the ages, which arrogates to itself divine prerogatives, and it persecutes God's people when they do not submit to the evil state's false claims. So what is the beast in Revelation 17? It's human power, okay? Secular power, government, authority that has forgotten that it belongs to the one who was and is and is to come. What happens when power detaches itself from submission to God? It becomes dark. It becomes demonic. It becomes beastly. It starts devouring and consuming and oppressing human life. So now, as we're reading Revelation 17, we're becoming aware that John is really not talking about something that happened long ago or something that's going to happen way out there in the future, is he? He's talking about right now, the way that the nations of the earth, world governments, the powers that be now, detach themselves from the rule of God and in so doing become beastly, the beast. But what about the woman? Who's the woman? John does us a great kindness in chapter 17 by explaining to us exactly who the woman is. Look down in 17 and verse 18. John writes that the woman that you saw is what? It's the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So if the beast is the whole kingdom that was the Roman Empire, what then is the woman? Rome, right? At Rome as the consolidation of that power ruling over that kingdom. But it's Rome, and this is important for you to see, it's Rome seen in a particular aspect, okay? It's Rome seen in a particular way because John goes on to unpack just what it was that Rome was doing that was causing all of this sin and wickedness on planet Earth. Look down at 18 and verse 3. All of the nations have drunk the maddening wine of the adulteries of this woman, the kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the who? Uh, this isn't like rhetorical. I need you to talk to me. Who grew? Who? Who? What does it say? The who? The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Look at verse 9 of the same chapter. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry. Woe, woe to you, O great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. And then who is going to weep? It's the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because nobody's buying their cargoes anymore. So if the beast represents human power, secular 
power run amok, what does the woman represent? It's economic power run amok, okay? It's the way that our buying and our selling and our trading, our attempts to create value, actually diminish and degrade human life. Now we're really not talking about the first century anymore, are we? Or someplace far in the future. We're talking about right here and right now. The way that the markets have a way of crushing people. Look at how John goes on. He talks about cargoes of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice and of incense, myrrh and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and what else? Human beings sold as slaves. But John could hardly paint a better picture of the moment that we live in in human history than that. Secular power, secular governments, world reign and rulership run amok and markets conspiring with them to diminish and degrade human life. And here's what God does in Revelation 17, and I hope that you didn't miss it, that what God does in 17 is that he turns wicked political power and exploitative economics against each other and in so doing causes Babylon to fall. That what he does is he takes this whole ungodly system and as he did so many times in the Old Testament text, God climbs inside of the ungodly system and he scrambles the power of it. He turns it against itself so that the wickedness that was going on in Babylon, literally it consumes itself. That's what the text actually says, that the kings of the earth and the merchants and all of that, they consume this great woman who's sitting upon the beast. There's like this, that's what evil is like, by the way. Evil has a self-defeating quality about it that it literally deconstructs itself. It devours itself. And in so doing, the kingdom of God breaks in. What is God doing? He's turning wicked political power and exploitative economics against one another. And in so doing, he's causing Babylon to fall. But that still leaves a question unanswered. What really is Babylon? What, when we talk about this great woman that will eventually be devoured. We talk about this power that will be deconstructed, Babylon. What actually is Babylon? And I want to submit to you this morning that Babylon is a spiritual reality. Babylon is a spiritual reality. That it occurs when a people becomes a wicked parody of itself. And God judges Babylon in order to save who? Babylon is what happens in Rome when Rome forgets that all power and authority belong to God. Are you with me this morning? And by the way, that's what happens with every power on planet earth when it forgets that all power and authority belong to God. Does God hate Rome? No. God loves Rome. God loves the cultural goods of Rome and the cultural capital of Rome. God loves the people of Rome. He loves that beautiful ancient Mediterranean basin. God loves all of that. Does God hate Rome? No. He loves Rome enough that what he hates about Rome is Babylon. Are you with me? 
He hates it when Rome becomes a perversion of itself. Just like God feels, I mean, that's the way that he feels about every power on planet earth. Think about your family. Does God hate your family? No. What does he hate in your family? He hates the sin inside your family. And when sin climbs inside a family structure and perverts it, what happens to the family? The family becomes a a parody of itself. It becomes Babylon. So what is the will of God then for the family? To destroy Babylon in order to what? To save the family. That's what God wants. Does God hate any of the peoples on planet Earth? No. Does he hate any cultures? Does he hate any countries? No, don't you remember the end of the story in Revelation? It says it over and over and over again that all of the nations will come and fall down before him. Does God hate any of the countries of our earth? Does God hate the United States of America? No. What he does is he loves it enough to oppose what's evil in it. So what God does is he climbs inside of the Babylon, inside of all of our political systems and structures, in order to save what's true about us. That's how God, that's how God, that's how God is with us. And I am, I think that that's a word for us. (laughs) I think it's a word for us when we think about what does appropriate Christian citizenship look like? And I'm not just talking about the United States of America. I'm talking about if you were a citizen and the Soviet Union, if you're a citizen somewhere in Europe, you're a citizen in China, Japan, Thailand, South America, anywhere. What does appropriate Christian citizenship look like? I think that there are temptations everywhere. There are temptations on the one hand to over-identify ourselves with a place, and there are temptations on the other hand to grow cynical about the place. And I think that both of those things are temptations that we must avoid. I think that when we are citizens of the kingdom of God, what it does is it liberates us to be in what I like to call a lover's quarrel with the place and the people that we belong to. That because we belong to the kingdom of God, we have clearer eyes about what is good and true and beautiful, which means that we're in a position to bless what is good and true and beautiful about any people that we belong to, family, community, state, country, we can love what is good with all of our hearts. Why? Because we're citizens of the kingdom of God. Yeah, first. And because we're citizens of the kingdom of God first, we can be really good citizens of the nations of the earth second. (laughs) We have eyes to see what's good. And when we have eyes to see what's good, we also, therefore, have eyes to see what else? What's evil? Christians should be the best citizens because we're citizens of somewhere else first. I love being an American with my whole heart. I think that this place is amazing. I'm born and raised central Wisconsin. I think that there are few more beautiful places on planet Earth than central Wisconsin for 15 days out of the year. (laughs) Somewhere (laughs) in June, July, maybe, it gets nice. I love that place, man. I love its rivers and its lakes and its forests and the hunting and the fishing and the Packers. I love the Packers, man. I love it all. 
It's great. Born and raised in central Wisconsin. We lived in Oklahoma for a little while. And Oklahoma was great too. And all these amazing things. I have any Okies in the house this morning? Yeah, a couple of you. Oh, yeah, that's right. Two of my kids are Okies. They were born there. I'm sorry, guys. I'm trying. It's a lot to remember. It's preaching. You know, it's <laughs> Oklahoma, so beautiful. My wife and I lived in Chicago for a while. We were so intimidated. I remember going up to Chicago. It was big, bold city. We come from a little town of 18,000 or so people in one of the great metropolitan cities of the world. Are we going to be able to survive here? And you know what we found out about Chicago is that those people are nice. They're, they're amazing, actually. Do we, do we have any Chicagoans in the house here? Yes! Chicagoans are great. They put up a tough exterior, but once you're in, baby, like you're in. And we love that about Chicago. We love the culture and we love Giordano's pizza, but Lumonati's is better and all of that, you know. And we've traveled everywhere in these United States of America and we love the oceans of California and Florida and the Grand Canyon. And we love the beauty of the Midwest and we love Colorado for crying out loud. This place is amazing. It's God's gift to planet Earth. We love this place. I'm passionate about this place and I do think it's the best country on planet Earth in the same way that I think that my family is the best family on planet Earth, Nana Nana Boo Boo. That's how you should feel. I'm so glad that I'm made out of this dirt. I thank God that I belong to this place, that I belong to this people. When the Star Spangled Banner, I get goosebumps at that. In America the Beautiful and the stories. I love American history. I love knowing where we've come from and what we fought for and how we put it all together and the great minds that have gone into this. I love all of that stuff. And I say that a period, end of sentence. I love this place. New paragraph. I'm disturbed by so much too. And I'm not disturbed in addition to what I love about this place. I'm disturbed because I love this place. And because I love this people. And I, because I love this land, and because I love what it represents, I'm disturbed. I'm disturbed at the fact that we took so much land from Native American peoples, and we never paid them back. I remember when we moved to Denver back in 2009 to help some friends plant a church. I was on a jog one day by the Platte River, and along the Platte River in Denver, they have these little uh, signs up that give you some ind- uh, indication of the history of Denver, and they're wonderful to read, get some context for the place. And, One of the signs, I remember I stopped to read it one day, and it talked about how back in the day when Denver was first being built, Native American peoples everywhere there, and white settlers who had come there, folks that had moved out for the gold rush, you know, trying to get rich, trying to build a city. What they said to the Native American peoples is, hey, we're really good at building cities and creating culture and all of that in this land. I think that we could develop this well. So how about what we do is we move you all out east a little bit further to land that's maybe a little bit more rugged, and we'll take this, and then as we become prosperous over the next however many years, we'll pay you $15 or so dollars as restitution for this land. Do you know how much they paid? Goose egg. What? Why? Why? What is that all about? And you know what that should do to us? See, if we're over-identified with America, then you can't really talk about America without it taking it personally, right? Oh, no, we we didn't do that. No, 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 no. See, because we're citizens of the kingdom of God first, and we're citizens of the kingdoms of this world second, it gives us clear eyes to say that that was wrong. 
that that's a degradation of those people. That literally and actually what was happening in Revelation 17 happened there along the Platte River. That power went amok and the desire for money ran amok and it consumed people. It hurt people. When I think about the sad legacy of Roe versus Wade in our country, 60 million lives, million, doctors, lawyers, artists, creatives, innovators, politicians, leaders, so much good never saw the light of day and all in the name of freedom? What kind of freedom is it that buries other people? What kind of rights is it that sets itself against other people's rights? I need more amens from somebody in the house this morning. See, to love the Lord, the writer of Proverbs says, is to hate evil. That we're called to, to hate those things. When I think about where our culture is now, there's so many beautiful things about our culture now, and there are so many terrible things about our culture this political season, this year has been a heartbreaking year for us. Watching the polarization of our culture and how we're so seemingly incapable of having a cogent conversation anymore about things that matter to us. And the people of God, again, there's a temptation either to over-identify with our country or to over-identify with one side or the other or to become cynical about it all. And I'll confess to you that that's my temptation my temptation is to go, ah, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but God reigns and I'm in the church and it's all going to be fine and we'll work it out and let God work it out over there. And I don't think that that's the Christian thing to do. God had every opportunity with us to just write us off, to let humanity go to hell in a handbasket. And did he do that? No. But the scripture says that the word became what? flesh and moved right into the neighborhood, that God loved us so much that he refused to stand at a distance from us. He made our cause his cause. He made our wickedness, he took it into his body. He entered inside of it. You ask me what's the appropriate Christian response or position to the nation, to the nations of the earth. It's something like that. That because we belong to another kingdom, we enter fully into the kingdoms of this world with a prophetic word. That we speak to it about what is good and true and beautiful, and we also work to oppose those things that are wicked inside of it. But we don't hold ourselves aloof. We don't stand at a distance. And do you know who the greatest example of this was that ever lived? It's Jesus the Lord. Jesus who came and prophesied to Israel. Jesus who came to remind Israel of who Israel belonged to. But Jesus who stood up in the midst of Israel and called Israel to return to the Lord. And in return for his prophesying to Israel, do you know what Israel did? They rejected him and they pushed him out. And he had every opportunity to write off Israel. And instead, do you know what he did? The scripture says that in the final hours before his life, when he knew that he was heading to the cross, he climbed up on a hill outside of Jerusalem and when he saw the city, he wept over it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
you who kill the prophets and you who stone those that I've sent to you. How I have longed to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I tell you, you will not see me again until you hear them say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The time is coming, he said, when things are going to be torn down here. And this will happen to you because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming among you. That's how we should be. Something like that. Not cynical and not over-identified, but we're in it in such a way that what happens out there in culture, it breaks our hearts. And so we determined to enter into it. And Jesus was so committed to Israel that he died for Israel. That's our call. Something like that. And when I think about an example of this, a modern example of this, I always think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know the story. The rise of the Nazi regime in Germany, the early part of the 20th century. That was Babylon if there has ever been a Babylon. A perversion of what was good and true and beautiful in Germany. And Bonhoeffer at every turn fought to oppose that and to strike it down and to do what he could to deconstruct it. And in 1938, 1939, he had an invitation to go to Union Theological Seminary, New York City. Friends and colleagues said to him, Dietrich, you're doing such great work, but we feel like you're going to get crushed by the evil of the Reich. So you need to leave. And all of that prophetic ministry that you're doing, we think that you could actually do it better over here on the other side of the pond in a safe place. And he got over there and he was over there a week, a couple weeks, a month maybe. And he was so convicted in his soul that he'd done something wrong. And Bonhoeffer started communicating to his friends and colleagues. He said, I do not have the right to share in the rebuilding of my people the German people now, unless I share in their fate right now. And he took the last boat that went from the United States to Germany. He took it in 1939 back to Germany, and you, how, you know how the story ends. He gave his life as a martyr. There, it's something like that, guys. It's something like that. That what Bonhoeffer was opposing in his country was the Babylonian element in it. God is determined to de destroy Babylon in order to save Rome. That's what he's doing. He's determined to destroy Babylon in this country in order to save this country. He's determined to destroy Babylon in every country in order to save all of the countries of the earth. And for us to live out our vocation as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as citizens of the kingdoms of the earth as well, is for us to rise up in the midst of it, to say yes to what's kingdom and no to what's anti-kingdom. And I vote, yes, please vote. It's an incredible civic responsibility and privilege that we have. If you haven't filled out your ballot, go fill out your ballot for the love of all that's holy and drop it off. But do you know that our vocation is bigger than just voting? Things move when we pray. And sometimes I think as American Christians, we forget that. And so then everything for us becomes about pulling the levers of political power and pushing the right buttons to try to manipulate an outcome. That's not on us. Vote your conscience, baby. Vote it all the way down and do everything that you can. And then when you've done everything that you know to do, you know what you're called to do? Here it is, Lord. It all belongs to you. We're going to do that this morning. Would you stand to your feet if you're able to? Folks that are not believers all over our country, they're voting too. So to that extent, we're doing as much as everybody else. 
But you know what those that don't know Christ can't do that we can do? Call upon him as Lord and ask him to reign with his rule and his righteousness. And so now begin to turn your hearts as we prepare ourselves for communion. We remember that we're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so our job as a kingdom of priests is to bring the nations of the earth to the feet of the Lord. And that's what we do. This morning, Lord Jesus, we bring these United States of America and all that concerns these United States to you. And we say, well, we say like Liam prayed and like Jesus you prayed. We say, hallowed be your name. There's the first and the best prayer of the people of God. Lord, sanctify your name in these United States of America again. Hallow your name in every one of these states again, in every county again, in every city again, in every family again. Hold your name as sacrosanct again in these United States of America. And we say, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. What's Babylonian about us wherever our power is run amok, wherever our economics are destroying and degrading people, we say, let your kingdom come and let your will be done in this place like it's done in heaven. And we say, pour out your spirit and bring renewal in this place. We say, lift up these United States of America that the truth of what they were created to be in your sight, oh God, would shine out, break pride, break anger, break revenge, break vengeance, break it all off of us. We pray that you present this nation one more time to yourself again as a people sanctified to the Lord. And now, Lord, we remember that there is no way for us to expect you to do that for the nations of the earth unless we do it first. And so we say in us, sanctify us. And we pray this prayer together as a prayer imploring you for our sanctification. Brothers and sisters, let's say it together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name and all God's people said, amen. Let's sing this song of response and worship. Pastor Colin's going to lead us to the table in just a minute here.
Sisters, this morning, would you, uh, 
this call and response, would you speak this boldly? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you do that right now all over this room? Would you lift up your hearts and your hands to the Lord and give thanks to Jesus this morning? Thank you, Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes church would you proclaim the mystery of our faith together Christ has died Christ is risen Christ will come again Jesus we wait in expectation thanking you that you will come again God, this is a mystery of our faith. And God, we choose to trust in the saving, healing work of your son, Jesus. Thank you for this gift that you give to us freely, the gift of yourself. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let's receive the bread together. the cup together. I'm going to sing the doxology together and then Pastor Andrew will come up to close our service. With your hands turned upward, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and may he give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. You guys are the sweetest. God loves you. Jesus died for you. The Spirit is filling you. Go be salt and light in the world, okay? If this is your first time with us, stop at Connect Central. We want to see you. We'd love to meet you. Our altar ministry team will be up front here for prayer. If you have any prayer needs, we'd love to stand with you, pray for you. That's all for now. Go Packers. Um, I think they're halfway through, halftime or so. We'll catch up on that. Love you all. See you next week.